Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. From this point on, I'm so sick of trying to get better, actually physically and proactively try and get better. I'm just going to be better. And being better meant what? That's the question mark. What does be better look like? Well, be better means be in the moment every second. Be there, right there. Nowhere else. Not, not, not before you win, not after you win, not before a ball, not in, not, not, not in preparations. Just understand what it is that you need to be better at and get busy about doing it. Hey everybody, before we get into this next episode, I wanted to say a quick hello and I hope everyone is staying safe and taking care of themselves during these unprecedented times. I normally try to do every episode in person, but because of the isolation that we're all currently upholding for everyone's safety, I recorded this episode with Matt Hayden remotely. Please do take care, everyone, and I hope you all really enjoy this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Today on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats, I have the great fortune to interview a fellow Queenslander who I always tried to emulate growing up. Through sheer hard work and determination, this guy achieved so many things that all cricketers only ever dreamed of. I was so fortunate to have been mentored by this guy on and off the field from the day that I came into the Australian squad in 2002. And now it is awesome to have a chance to gain even more incredible insights from one of the greatest opening batsmen the world has ever seen. Matt Hayden, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. <laughs> hey, what? Yeah, no, my, my pleasure, mate. Yeah. Hados is one of the great guys in world cricket and is one of the most worldly, interesting and articulate cricketers I've ever played with. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure, but it's absolutely true. Um, look, I'm going to read out, I'm going to let everyone just bathe in these incredible numbers. I'm just going to read out just some, some basic numbers of the incredible things that you achieved um, throughout your career. Hados played 103 test matches scoring 8,625 runs at an average of 50.73 with 30 hundreds. With his high score being 380, which is an Australian record and was a world record until uh, Brian Lara took over. Um, Hados played 161 one-day internationals, scoring 6,133 runs at an average of 43. With a high score of 181 not out, he scored 10 hundreds as well. And during that highest score, I was actually a runner for a part of that innings when you hit the toe <laughs> after I nicked off and missed out an opportunity. Anyway, uh, he also played good nine. Flat, good flat track that day, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't and what about the size of those boundaries? Oh, as well? gosh, and a little bit downwind. Del- delicious. <laughs> um, 
I I've forgotten about that actually. You were a runner that day, weren't you? Yeah, I nicked off. Yeah, I nicked off to Gillespie. Oh, you yeah. idiot. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, you made the most, and then I was happy to run. I'm very happy to run. Uh, for you, I got a, I, I don't reckon you got nicked off real early. I reckon. No, nah, 60 got, odd. I got 60 yeah, odd. Yeah, there you go. I reckon we're yeah. 100 partnership. Yeah. We had yeah. a little handshake and a cuddle in the middle. Didn't and, we just? Yeah. And then you just. Jumped off the boat as I was serving up the cocktails. <laughs> and then jumped back on to run. Perfect. <laughs> First one out. <laughs> Here's a question back at you. Is there any worse feeling in cricket than the thought of running your partner out that you're a runner for? And has yeah. that ever happened to you? Well, not to me, but I, I scored a lot of runs with runners, blowing my calves and hamstrings out of the time. <laughs> when that was gone, I was like, oh, what's going to happen now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, change gosh. the rules maybe they change it for me oh it's a nightmare that though yep all right so <laughs> ados played nine t20 internationals averaging 51 at an amazing strike rate of 143 he played 295 first class matches scoring over 24,000 runs at an average of 52.57 with 79 first class hundreds he also played 308 list a domestic which are domestic one, one dayers, scoring over 12,000 runs at an incredible average of 40, 44.63. And finally, the domestic, his domestic T20 numbers, with the IPL being a big chunk of these, he played 50 games, scoring over 1,600 runs at an amazing average of 36, with a strike rate of 136. Hados' international career spanned 15 years and was one of the main pillars in the Australian team that dominated world cricket for over a decade and was instrumental in the Aussies winning two World Cups back-to-back, 2003-2007, with the Aussies not losing a game, going through both of those World Cups undefeated. I am going to just indulge a little bit more here, just with a few of my personal highlights from watching from afar, but also being so fortunate to be in the dressing room for um, one of these moments in particular. So the first one for me was your innings of 203 against India in the third test in Chennai in 2001. Like you did have, you had an amazing test series, but this innings for me was a real standout. For someone who grew up refining like our game on um, fast, bouncy, seeming wickets, like you, at the Gabba, you opening the batting, to refine your game to the extent which meant you're able to bat like this in Indian conditions, turning conditions, challenging conditions, was just blew my mind to think that someone could refine the game that much that you're able to bat like that in those conditions is absolutely phenomenal. And people who need to go onto like YouTube and watch that innings because it is phenomenal to be able to see how someone can be in so much control over what was going on when the conditions were very challenging. So that was my first one. <laughs> the second one was your 100 off, was well, 101 off 68 balls versus South Africa um, in the first game of the 2007 World Cup. The reason why that stands out for me, you scored, you had an amazing World Cup scoring three centuries, but that innings really stands out to me because I remember being in that team meeting <laughs> before, <laughs> before that game <laughs> when we're talking about Sean Pollock, okay, what are we going to do with him? How are we going to play him? And after a little bit of people sort of, you know, oh, yeah, um, I think we should take him on. You said, very matter of factly, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to run in him. You? Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm going to run in him. I'm going to take him down. And oh yeah, that's exactly what you did. <laughs> yeah, um, that was an amazing lead up to that. I mean, it, you know, numbers do lie. And the reality of it is, is that when you look at so, so those two, uh, 
moments of time when you reflect upon, you know, a career like mine, the, the Indian uh, experience and the World Cup, a bit like these times now where there's elements of pressure and adversity and um, there are those that you want in your corner during those times and there are also those that the world just finds out, it doesn't matter what um, field of life that you're in or walk of life that you're in, you just get found out because you, you almost have to be in a situation where you're future-proofing. And if I can go to the first memory, the 2007 one with Sean Pollock, who <laughs> largely, Polly, I, I spent years analysing, you know, in test cricket, um, he was very methodical. He was extremely talented. He was a real discipline and force to be reckoned with. And if you let him be that person, he was the best in the business. <laughs> And I knew that because he got me out so many times, you know, in, in every version of the game. And I also knew the, the one factor, and this is, this is probably one of the great outcomes that I got out of that particular innings in, in the World Cup, is that you never necessarily show your strengths until you absolutely have to. And what Polly hadn't realised is that I'd been working and you guys behind the scenes knew that I'd been working on a cut shot. And I knew that Sean Pollock, and the South African team and world, world teams, not just South Africa, but they were happy to keep me out of play by bowling wide outside off stump. <laughs> and largely that worked until I knew that this was my opportunity to pounce and show a strength that I've been not hiding, but I suppose calculating around taking risks. And to a left-hander, right-hand bowlers, taking the ball away from left-handers, if you start opening yourself up, as we, as you rightly said, we grew up on fast, bouncy wickets, you start opening up between covers and, you know, point region. Mm. And before long, you've got your pads off and you're sucking on a cool <laughs> one in the dressing room. Yeah. You know, so, so that moment, you know, I think it might have been third or fourth ball where you could just sense the tension. It was wide outside off stump, wide outside off stump, wide outside off stump, slap through point four. And from that moment on, I just knew that you could just see that was kind of like the first punch. Mm. And then it was, guys, well, that plan's not going to work. So what next? And I suppose that's the competitive advantage. That's the situation where you ultimately, as a batsman, want where suddenly you throw something at an opposition that they're not quite balanced about. And... The, the net result of that decision then becomes extremely powerful. It's it's like a puppet on a string in many ways then. Yep. Um, but then, you know, going back again to India, you know, that was eight years in the process, you know, eight mm. years of patiently working towards improving mentally, physically. In many ways, you know, the discounted element to, to cricket is that spiritual element that, that ability to be able to connect to the people around you, to the environments, to challenge how that feels in your life and what that looks like, and then to come up with strategies. You know, it just, it was such an, uh, you know, a great eight years behind the scenes. You know, like I'm thinking back to county cricket in 98, 99, where I was fortunate enough to be captain of a really world-class um, young spinning team, Graham Swan, uh, Alec Brown, um, a young Monty Panesar, we had the conditions that suited us. Mm. Um, but by the same token as well, I had to create and work on my game plan, which, again, wasn't an intentional situation because who knows what's happening tomorrow, let alone in four years' time. But 
I knew if there was a particular area of my game that I had to work on, it was to not only control play against spin, but it was to dominate spin so I could be a force through the middle overs of game. So life scenarios, match scenarios, kind of just, you know, one, one thing that I always say is that you have to be super careful about what you think about because sooner rather than later, and this is for good and for bad, mm. sooner rather than later it starts to manifest itself into your life. And, and, you know, in my case it was about trying to connect with, you know, the middle stages of the game uh, and work heavily towards coming up with strategies, working with teams to develop as we did, you know, in that power-breaking series where uh, Ricky Ponting wasn't available and Adam Gilchrist, captain of the side, we ended up winning that Border Gavaska trophy for the first time. Mm. Um, even though, you know, personally I didn't have the same series as what I did in 2001, I wouldn't replace those two tournaments. The, the fact is that, you know, as a team, I, f- I felt like I had a, a major impact in, in developing plans and strategies mm. right across the batting order. Yeah, no question. And when you're talking about, like, just... The, the technical aspects so, aspect. so for you was there's there's a spin like playing spin technical aspect that you knew that you worked on and was there one thing in particular that you knew once I got this right that I was going to be able to dominate spin bowling in all conditions I don't think it's as clear as that I can vividly remember you and I having a conversation around a very technical element of of your game motto and that was your backlift mm. and how technically there's no such thing as a perfect technique. Mm. And and what one thing does, like when you've got a stationary backlift like you did, mm. it tends to it tends to uh, make you less nimble because you've got an opportunity through your counter counterbalancing your backlift. And I don't want to get too technical on the show, but you know, the count the, the movement in anything enables freedom of footwork and mm. freedom of movement. Yep. However, you can get that's got its limitations because if you're free then and you're moving everywhere, well, guess what? So too do your eyes and then you've got no hope of seeing it hitting the ball. So, you know, like with your power hitting technique and your stationary backlift, it actually set you up to, to, to stay as still as you possibly can, which is a key element. No one ever talks about eyesight really in the game, but Ultimately, it's a game of vision, and if your eyes are moving all over the place, then you've got no hope of moving something at, you know, 150 kilometres an hour, um, or even less, you know, when it comes to spin bowling. But yeah, so even facing like fast bowling, that was one of your key things. Once I knew that I had to be really still, and how important keeping my head still, so my vision was clear to pick up the length and line of the ball super fast. That was when you felt like, yeah, okay, I, I get that, that. How important that is, and I lock it in. I was, uh, I was watching a movie last night with the kids for about the 15,000 time that I've watched this movie, but it was The Last of the Samurai. And um, I, there was a, at the start of the movie, I said to the kids, there's a point in time in this movie where a certain line changed my career forever. And their game was to pick where it was. And to, to, a, to a young fella, they, they all picked it. And that was a line around the mental aspects of the game which transfer over to the physical aspects of the game. And that was the line where uh, Tom Cruise was, for the first time coming in combat uh, with his nemesis from the samurai side that killed his best mate. And a, a little, uh, one of the boys, the son of the, 
the the king or the I don't know if they call the emperor of the samurai, but his son came up to him and he said, "No mind." He said, "You too many mind, mind on this, mind on that, you know, just no mind." And there's a stillness and a beauty in batting, which is a meditation in itself that we all miss still to this day. That connection purely around having nothing but but an empty vessel to work with so that you can absorb and retain information quicker because it's all about that reaction time it's about the early pickup it's about it's about being really settled with the conditions uh, it's about being confident and, and personally satisfied even without the outcomes of the game these are all really difficult things and they're the 101s of meditation you don't get any of those elements right right and before you know it your mind starts going in a thousand different directions often to what it shouldn't be um, even even the best players, you know, will always talk about their hiccups before their uh, heroism. And they'll always talk about those messengers and times that weren't good, uh, in fact, were the counter, almost counterproductive to where they were at that stage of their career, but they end up turning those around to become, you know, the great, you know, the great lessons and the great influences of your life. Um, and it takes a great courage to do that because it's a very easy thing to just go, yeah, it's someone else's fault. And by the way, you know, put it all on them. Was there from the mental aspect that you talk about, which is so incredibly, incredibly powerful and that for me, knowing you, that was one of the things that really stood out, not just from a, obviously technically you're very good, but mentally you're so strong. Was there one thing that you knew and you found a technique to be able to get still and be totally present with exactly where you need to be to react as well as you possibly could? There's maybe not one thing, but, um, and this is one of the things I admire about you as well, Wado, and I'll go back to your match-winning performance in the IPL um, where you're under pressure, you were scoring less than a runner ball for at least the first, or it would have been 30, I reckon, mm. um, and then you exploded into you know, what what became one of the great innings of IPL um, history and also finals. But in that time, you, you're, under, you're under so much pressure. And the reality of that pressure is that your mind will always want to take you to those places which you fear the worst and you, and you have the least best outcomes for. Mm. And so you have to have a, a, a method. Now, I call these anchors. And it's just around sea days, you know, where you basically, you know where your spot is, you throw out an anchor. And all those that, you know, have been boating and stayed over in a boat overnight know that the one certainty that you have to have before you camp out in a boat is that you're going to stay still because you don't want to wake up and find yourself 15 miles from where you were just because you drifted. Yep. So when, you, when you're drifting in a, in a cricket innings, you know, it's the same thoughts. You can never settle. It's, it's, you know, what's the wind doing? Where's the direction of the water going to take me? It's, it's all these crazy thoughts. But once you've got an anchor out and you know that anchor, and mine in a batting innings was to say the word ground and, and fight, two, two of my sort of key um, passages of right to, to my mental game. Because I knew that I loved to fight. It was, an, it was an area where I was really comfy because I'm a pretty, as you know, kickback cruisy sort of bloke and so when I got into a competition it had to be the polar opposite um, because that would then let me and elevate me to a position where I could just be grounded and, and I could be absolutely in that moment 
and it just just wouldn't let it go. You know, it's it's like a a dog on a bone when it comes to that that mental silence. Yeah. And even when it comes to the partnership conversations or the conversations with other players, you know, the little banter matches that happen, I knew quite easily that I could come back, give a piece of advice or, you know, steady steady the ship or, or rebut someone that's, you know, having a go at me, but always come back to that place where you just think I'm safe, happy and grounded in this, in this space and bring it on because you're just feeding the instincts of fighting, yeah. which I love. I think if you don't have those things, you, you know, you may as well. And, look, there are times in your career where you don't have them. Mm. And it's almost, this is the beauty of, and the difference between sport and business. In business, you rarely get that kind of immediate feedback. <laughs> you'll, you'll go down a process. You'll waste a bunch of, of money. You'll take on different contractors, suppliers. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll try and discover a network of people that, you feel are all like part of your own direction and, and where you want to be going as a business and whatnot. But the reality is they're just not. And so sport, it has an immediate thing. You make a mental mistake and suddenly you're sitting back and having a, a cool one in the dressing room or a cup of coffee. You know, you just, you get the feedback, boom, straight away. And you know it. And that's why it's so frustrating because yep. you not only make that mistake, you make it hundreds of times in your career. The same mistake. There's only a couple of people watching as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the pressure, the pressure, the pressure is enormous. I agree. I suppose in many ways, as an athlete, you, you control your own destiny because Justin Langer said this one time to me. He said, "Your only commodity is runs as a batsman. Yeah. <laughs> You've really got one thing to think about." And the moment that that, that starts to, uh, you know, dwindle, then all the other things come into play. You, you're mm. under enormous pressure. Um, and they're, they're often around just one thing when it's all said and done technically in cricket as well, and that is all of these other thoughts <laughs> tend to distract you from doing the one thing that you've paid a lot of money to do, and that's watch the ball. <laughs> now, now yeah. after that, you watch the ball. Mm. Then, then pretty much everything looks after itself. Otherwise, you probably don't deserve to be there. You're not good enough to be at the level, um, because yep. however you're reacting to that doesn't really matter. Yep. What you say there is the one thing that stands out to me the most. So, how strong mentally you were in a way to be able to just not allow distractions in. That like it blew me away that you used to not know how many runs you're on, it, like ever. <laughs> it blew pigeon away as well. And Ricky Ponting, you still reckon yeah. I'm bullshitting around it? <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, I remember. So the first tour that went on 2002 um, in South Africa, it was my first test match that I was in the squad in Johannesburg. I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, you hitting runs. You're on not, whatever it must have been on 99 or 98, whatever you were, and you hit the you hit the, sh- the shot that went in the gap. And it wasn't until the crowd actually there was a delay between the crowd erupting and then you actually celebrating. And mm. that for me is like, what happened there? Is he not? Did he not know how many he was on? And then, and you didn't, because you're that, no. you're that mentally tough to be able to just let, just get rid of all any distraction that wasn't what just watching the ball and staying present. And that yeah. for me was amazing. That's that's the power, and that's mental toughness. I suppose we all look at scoreboards, don't we? Meaning in life, we look at our our scoreboard of life. Now, they can have different 
just like there is on a scoreboard, you can have a runs column, you know, wickets column, you know, dot balls column. You can have a whole lot of things which a business person will call KPIs, but none of them actually matter unless they're the right they're the right process for you to deliver on. And and I'm saying in cricket, it's such an instant. Like the ball that last got bowled doesn't matter. The ball that currently is getting bowled is the only thing that can hurt you. It's not the umpire, it's not the wicket, it's not the cricket ball, nothing. It's only in that moment that can actually at some point change the outcome of that particular delivery, which can change the outcome and does change the outcome if you mount enough of them together. In other words, if you're scoreboard watching, you it takes forever to get to 10 runs, forever. It's a lifetime. <laughs> and the chances are that you probably won't get there because that's pressure so by just staying so singular and it's a really difficult thing to do it is and look it doesn't matter whether you're on naught or getting close to 100 and you kind of know whether you're getting close to milestone mm. figures mm. but i also I also beyond those milestone figures it's the possibility of what hasn't been done before is the thing that i found most restrictive about watching the scoreboard because if you're looking at the scoreboard, you're not thinking of the moment. You're not thinking of the moment. You're not entertaining the possibilities of the future. And they seem to me, it seems such a, a simple thought process. When did you discover that though? Was it, were you Probably, always like that? Or no. was there a moment where you go, no, nah, I'll just shut it out because it's looking yeah. at the scoreboards is, is distracting me. I'll be, I'll be lying to say I knew the exact moment. It's, mm. it's like a lot of these sort of, um, these battles, if you like, that you have in, in your career, that you, you just go through stages. And if I was to wager a guess, I reckon it would have been after 97 and I reckon it would have been after I got dropped from the South African tour party to, to tour to England, which was the – it was a 97 tour, I think, and I'd been left out, played the last test in, in um, Pretoria – Got knocked over LBW, shocking decision to this day. <laughs> no DRS, just well, yeah, no Beautiful. DRS. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not arguing the toss on the DRS because I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure the modern day player takes it big time when it comes to that. But this thing from Brett Schulz was a filthy left arm swinger, outside leg stump, and I was fired out, but got dropped. So, and I just remember thinking that scoreboard, I just couldn't. I couldn't seem to budget. It was a, it was a battle against the scoreboard as opposed to a battle against the ball, and I just kind of made an internal pledge that a lot of these sort of old ways. I just thought, hey, blow this. Whatever I'm doing now is just not working, you know. So change, like be proactive and actually do something about it right now. And one of those fallouts, when you're having that brutal mirror discussion with yourself, is you <laughs> love those. You have to. Yeah, you, you have, have to. You have to. Yep. And, and it looks ugly, and it is ugly, mm. and it probably should look ugly, and, and is ugly as well, because yep. you need to understand and ask that self yourself the question of what do I need to do now moving forward? And fallout for me was to just go. I'm just going to let all of that stuff go. You know, I, I'm I, I'm capable of getting thousands of runs i've done it year in year out from this point on i'm so sick of trying to get better actually physically and proactively try and get better i'm just going to be better and being better meant what that's the question mark what does be better look like well be better means be in the moment every second 
be there, right there. Nowhere else. Not 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 before you win, not after you win, not before a ball, not in not 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 in preparations. Just understand what it is that you need to be better at and get busy about doing it. Again, that probably was a process of maybe months, but seeing out county cricket, loving that experience, being right there with my wife Kelly, just you know, consolidating our family, consolidating our life around, you know, the possibilities moving forward and just taking all of those sort of layers of skin and, and pain, you know, the career that lasts 20 years, 25 years, has got a lot of pain in it. You've got to, you're carrying around a lot of weight of just shite that doesn't help you. It just, it just weighs you down. Um, and there's a great liberty and one of the great mentors for me I, I don't know him i've spoken to him on the phone once kelly slater mm. he has this brilliant competitive instinct and he he has this this great capacity just to let go like that word is liberating just saying it when you just let, you're trying to chase let, isn't it you just let go of the baggage you know let go of the aspirations about things that are sitting on a scoreboard that are beyond your means. Like when you're one, you can't get a hundred, you know, it's, it's only till you get under it that you've got under it. So the scoreboard in my book is a great metric and metaphor for my life that yeah, you can acknowledge and, and it's, and it's fantastic that, you know, when you look at a scoreboard and, and the, the net result of five days of cricket is that you've won or three and a half days of cricket is that you've won, but it's, it's only, it's only in the process of just letting life unfold, ball by ball in our case, or brick by brick if you're a construction or, you know, share market portfolio, deal by deal. The net result of that is the most important thing. And I guess from an athlete's point of view, I understand the importance of being able to see each moment and just let it be. Incredibly well said, Doss. And that, for me, is the reason why you yeah, were as great as you are. To understand that, to realise it, and then just have that mental strength around, this is just what I'm going to do over and over again. And just and whatever's going to be will be, but I'm going to give myself the best chance. And for everyone to be able to hear that, it's exactly what everyone should be trying to chase because that is mental that's mental toughness. That's what if you've got – you're working hard on your technique and the, the actual skill base – from a technical point of view, but once you you get you have what you have. No one's from a cricket point of view. No one's got a perfect technique. You try and refine it to be as good as you can, but then you impart that with that mental toughness, which is just allowing everything, no distractions, just being totally present to react to what's coming down with the right intent, as you said in the mind, which is grounding and mm. the fight. So for me, mm. the fight I need I needed that fight. I needed that mental yeah. whether it was it whether it's outward or inward, I had to have that fight to go, you know, pushing back against something. And people just need to find what that, what some people, it's not fight. Some people just getting in a bubble and just staying there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So there's everything just bouncing off, but it's just knowing what works for you and then just staying there and Mm. allowing everything else to bounce off you. Just from a catching point of view. So you were a phenomenal catcher. Was there from a technical aspect, was there one thing that you worked on in particular with your catching that meant mm. once you got it down, you knew you're going to be able to be, react really well and catch more than you know, most balls that came your way? Or were you just naturally a, a really good catcher and you didn't have to actually work on that much and just, you know, just <laughs> repetition got yeah. it? Yeah, firstly, there's no such thing as being a master of something <laughs> within 
you know, you have to work hard. That's we all know that. And, you know, we all did work really hard on our catching. It was um, it wasn't just about catching, it was about our culture. And I think from a fielding point of view, it's the only thing in cricket that's actually not about you. Yes, it helps your team, but more than anything, there's someone relying on you as an all-rounder, what are you know that if I drop you, one, there's no worse feeling in life, but two, you can't get the outcome that you want. So there has to be an investment into that space as a culture. And it was very much evident in no matter what, we were very lucky because, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're playing great cricket, you know, in, in Brisbane, whether we're playing first-class cricket for Queensland or Tasmania uh, or New South Wales, you know, there was a great investment into the little simple things. And that mostly came from from our forefathers. Guys like Alan Border were, were really, you know, someone that for, my, for mine just straight away was just had no nonsense and zero capacity to not get that simple element of right of yourself right but for your team right as well and him in partnership um, with Bobby Simpson were really the key drivers behind the turning point behind Australian fielding culture became becoming as critical as the other two disciplines fielding and batting and and their simple uh, lessons, Bob Simpson's in particular, were based on two things pretty much exclusively. One, stance and movement um, through and capabilities of movement through that stance. We were talking a bit about batting before and how if you're too stable, you know, within your batting lineup and your batting setup, that becomes impossible to move. But if you're too, your base is too small and you become all over the place, ultimately, Fielding like batting is about vision. You, you have to be able to see the ball. So you have to be in a stance that enables you to, to be nimble enough to move but stable enough to be still so that at point of contact of the bat where the ball is going to be coming at you, that you need to see and react to the ball. So the stance was really uh, critical to that. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of someone, you know, that I think has got hand-eye coordination second to none, and that's Virat Kohli. However, in a fielding position, in particular in sort of slips area, his stance, and it's, and it's pandemic actually amongst a lot of subcontinental countries, their stance is so wide and so stable that it doesn't enable them to ever move. Mm. And so he's always, even though he's got incredible reaction time, which saves him actually, technically a simple thing that Bob Simpson told me was be on your balls of your feet, your knees pointing in rather than out, which is what, you know, a lot of subcontinental teams do. And so once, once the knees go out, it stabilises you and you can't move. In essence, what that does technically is that instead of having a range of, you know, half a metre or a metre either side of you, your range is basically a block because and, and you catch everything within that block probably better than anyone. But it's the moment it gets beyond that. And for a big person like me with, who is tall and you're the same, you needed to have a great capacity to be able to move sideways because, let's face it, not many balls come straight at you, mm. especially gully where I was primarily yeah, fielding. Yeah. So I needed to be able to laterally move and moving 90 kilos around um, at will is not, not that easy. So my stance and, and base setup had to be spot on. And Bob Simpson gave me that great piece of advice early doors and that really helped me. <laughs> um, the, the second piece of advice that Bob gave me and that was, was in combination with a few different individuals, but 
it gets referred to now as length of catch. And wicket keepers, that's a terminology that they're well used to, but fielders in slips and other fielders, even outfielders, they may not necessarily know what that means. So to walk you through that, it's about getting the ball out in front of you early or above you, wherever it is coming at you, but getting your hands out and then your hands coming back in towards you as opposed to going at the ball. Now, if you, were to, if you were to throw a ball to your five-year-old children, they will straight away go at the ball and they'll, and they'll go harder and it hurts. And that's because you've got just purely biomechanically and, and physically, some, you've got momentum coming at something that the ball's travelling at you. So you're, you're actually counteracting this collision point is, is right there. Mm. So, you know, for mine, that was a huge, huge lesson as well, having the ability to be able to see the ball early and then the longer that that catch could take, you know, getting into your hands, it could be like half a metre or more, the better chance you have of, of catching it. And that's often referred to as soft hands. Mm. Not hard hands is coming at the ball. Soft hands is, is, is going with the ball, going, accepting the energy of the ball and going with the flow. Again, so really, that's dif- so really well, difficult. Well, yeah, but it's so well explained because – the one thing that even like talking to my, my son about catching, it's as you see the ball, the only movement in a perfect world that you're doing is actually giving. You see the ball yep. and because your hands are so far like in front of you, all you're doing is actually just giving me the ball. You're not going out. You're not going out of the ball because as soon as you're going out, it's a force against. It's force the ball coming out and you're forced going out. So how there's, you articulate that one, is absolutely it's brilliant. There's one, there's one great drill that, and it really happened by accident, um, and then it sort of caught on a little bit. I saw it four or five times through my career, but I remember as kids, I wasn't much of a runner, but I used to throw a decent shot put. Um, and so we used to just, my brother and I, he was five years older than me, we used to chuck these uh, one kilo, I think they were, or a kilo and a half as you got a bit bigger, shot puts around to each other. Now you try and come up, you hand, put your hands up against a shot put, and you break your fingers. Mm. But it was then that I sort of copped on to the thought of accepting the energy of something and in the shot put you can't resist it. Mm. You just have to go with it. But you do that with, you know, kids out there listening to this, if you get a, sh- a heavy ball, it doesn't have to be a shot put, but a ball that's, that's four, five, six times heavier than a normal cricket ball or a tennis ball and get it to a point where, you start to catch that ball, then have 20 catches with that, that ball, then go back to a cricket ball and, and you'll understand the principle behind accepting the energy of the ball. Now, not only will you catch the ball better, but you'll actually, it'll feel like it's a feather. You'll throw that thing around until your proprioception reception gets used to it again because your mind is a powerful thing and it'll feel light for about 10 or 15 catches and then it'll go back to being heavy as a rock again. But that's a great drill for mums and dads out there looking to improve their children's um, catching technique. Get a real heavy ball, shot put ball, throw it around. When you're catching that well, go back to a tennis ball or cricket ball and, um, you know, it'll really work wonders on your game. A bit like the opposite to that, which is, you know, smashing tennis balls at you as well that are light and, and they, you know, highly reactive off your hands as well. If you try and catch a tennis ball with hard hands, they'll just ping off your hand. So they're two little tricks that, that we used, you know, right through our career um, to soften your hands um, and to accept the energy of the ball. So good, Doss. Well, well spoken, mate.
just from a fitness point of view, you obviously work very hard on your fitness. You're a fit and strong guy, um, but you did have a few injuries um, throughout your career. So what lessons did you learn around what you needed to be able to look after yourself and be the best version of bringing your skills, you know, every the best skills you can? Yeah, well, look, eras were defined by certain periods of time. So to simplify the three eras that I played in, which was non-professional, semi and then fully professional, the non-professional cricket athlete was basically a middle distance runner. You know, so they had huge beat tests, possibilities, capabilities. They they could they were very good runners, um, and they they had a great you know CO two max, no question of it. The fully professional player, where the game is a lot more driven by intensity and power, it doesn't really matter what capacity. Um, fielding, for example, you know, unless you were to power jump like an AFL footballer. You're not really in the game anymore when you're an outfielder because, you know, you have to be able to be nimble and move and strong and and, that, and balance is a you know, huge part of that. Whether you can run 15K at five-minute Ks, no one gives a rat's ass about. So I think, yep. you know, <laughs> are you hearing me, Watto? <laughs> I'm hearing you through and through. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I guess, you know, I was, I was a little lucky in, in many ways because, my brother Gary um, studied HM at Queensland University and and so he would challenge me around, you know, the, the training methods and techniques of the modern day cricketer, being a cricketer himself, to say that, Matt, I see these I see these influences in the game. Have you thought about becoming a power athlete? And and that concept hadn't really even come into my head. Um, I was just going with the flow and running my eight hundreds and getting hammered by guys like Jeff Foley and, you know, <laughs> middle distance runners basically but when I really thought about it I thought that has got zero impact on my game I mean yeah there's some benefits of cross training in cricket and in essence I think that laid quite a nice platform to about that long periods of time um, and to be able to think with clarity with uh, with fatigue um, but really when it's all said and done it was a game of moments meaning that if there was a run of three, a core component of that was speed and and agility, meaning that, okay, I could choose to run 1,500 metres or I could choose to run 60 yards or 64 yards faster than anyone else. And I, I can distinctly remember right up until my retirement, Michael Clark and Andrew Simons, who were considered the fastest runner of threes, and you might remember this as well at the fitness camp, Lotto, having to having to do it again because they couldn't believe that I was faster than them in a run of three. They mm. just refused to believe that I could beat <laughs> them in a run of three. Yeah. But, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for the breakdown of play in that situation. So for mine, it was about the reflex action, so going in and out of crease. And I had to be long and I was naturally really uh, nimble. And so I had to be long and strong, otherwise I'd get injury. So... Mm. So the core elements me, to me were balance, which is the ultimate power tool. Mm. And so cross-training that with surfing, snowboarding, you, you know, just cross-training it, just getting balance, skateboarding, cycling, whatever it is. Um, that was a key element. The, the, the second element, key element, because I suffered, as you said, uh, with stress fractures in my back, 
Mm-hmm. The second element was to, to just get everything as really hard hard in my centre because you're, you're a transverse working machine. You know, you don't... You know, one of the things that I changed, for example, in my weights program was to get away from stationary type weights programs and into, into cross-functional um, one, one weight going with multiple multitasking. Um, I don't know what the, the words are to that, but, you know, working with balance and weight, um, but, but using both sides of your body at, at the same time because that's what you do. You don't see someone run, you know, between with one arm. Yeah, um, it's functional movement, isn't it? it it's, it's functional yeah. movement. It's it's a, it's a, and and with balance because mm. if you can be as strong as you like, but if you get on a wobble board, which is ultimately what it is when you're on one foot with your eyes closed, mm. um, you know that you need to understand how it is that you can control that movement, because you control the movement, you control your eyes, and the game's about vision. So look, there was a lot of different phases, you know, for my training and and. And I really enjoyed watching, you know, the way that you'd go about um, your training as well with in particular your focus on your core. Like that was a major part of, of your training and, and you could see why you needed to be a, a, a multitasking athlete. You bowled, you batted, you field. You needed to have a really strong gut. The centre of, of mass needed to be perfect. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest thing that doesn't get spoken about and it, it was with some conjecture through my career this, is the whole concept of, of mental training as well. So, you know, and we've sort of touched on it today, but more broadly speaking, this, this concept around, and nonsense actually, around what team is and what self is and where those two sort of uh, properties really collide um, and around this issue of time because everyone's time sensitive in professional careers. And, and this mental freshness and this, this, this ability to be able to be agile in your mind and relax your mind and therefore get more out of your training and get more, more out of your career, that's the unspoken um, space. Yeah. And for mine, you know, going to Stratty, for example, and, and, and disappearing off-grid for four weeks and turning into a bloody, I don't know, some sort of hunting machine, you know, like a surfing machine, Cross training. I was doing stuff that no one was doing, you know, like mm. sandhill running. Um, I mean, I challenge anyone. You go for a three-hour surf, and if there's a better workout than that, then I, I haven't done it, you know. Like, and you get out of the water better than where you went into it, you know. Like, whereas sometimes you get into a gym, and you're worse off getting out of the gym than when you went into it. It's like, yep. such a drain, mm. you know. Like, and there's 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 two things that you've that you've got in life that are irreplaceable and no one can get any more of it and they don't, there's no prejudice in this. And these two things are time <laughs> and energy and we've got a finite amount of both. And I, I find it's so frustrating, you know, getting into a professional scene and talking at nauseam about the game and the situations and it's just guff. A lot of it, guff, and it doesn't make sense from either of those things, from time and energy. It's like a filter that you have around your thinking. And if neither of those two things are are adding value, then I challenge it. And I did challenge it, as you know. Like, I mean, batting, if you're not getting volume, then you've got to find volume from somewhere. 
You know, if you're not in a fitness sense, if you're not getting the fact that you need to be faster between the wickets and you need to set a program up that's going to be efficient on your time and better for your energy, then why do it? You know, like us heavy, heavy people, you know, 90 kilo people, there's no point in us going running a marathon because we will be busted. Now, if you're Brad Hogg, then, mate, by all means, go for a 15K run and knock yourself out. But you and I can't do that. See, we can all be people of vision, identity, and purpose. We can all be VIPs. Mm. But unless Shane Watson sees the vision of of his game for himself and his family and his team, ultimately, then what's the point? Like, Mm. no one can go out and do what you do in an IPL final. No one can do that. And no one has done that. That's why no one can do it, because no one else has done that. True? So you... You see that, I mean, we talk about greatness, but greatness is only just, it's just a word for that that means that you just saw the game or you see your life different to the persons Mm. that have been there before, respectfully, of course, but Mm. unless you've got some different angle, why are you there? Because someone else has already done it. Yeah. There's two parts when you're talking about this, Doss. So one of the, um, on Lessons Learned, I've um, interviewed Stephen Fleming and one of his proudest moments as a coach, especially as a young coach, mm-hmm. was uh, him and he talked about him l- letting you do exactly what you needed to, to do in mm. that, that um, IPL, the second IPL in South Africa. And yep. for you, he goes, what? And he said, what do you need? I was like, mm-hmm. well, I'd, I want to go surfing because that's the best place for me to be able to stay, as you said, time and <laughs> energy. And he yeah. said, and he goes, just make a break for me. I let him do because I trust, I absolutely trusted him because he yeah. said, and he said, and he had his, he had, he got the orange cap. He got the most there runs. Was what, there was a lot of white noise, you know, like I think, you know, when you challenge a system, very few systems are kind to those people, you know, <laughs> in one way take, or another. Trying to take going physio on tour. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I, I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, mm. there will be very few people. And, and to Stephen's credit, it's challenging being visionary, you know, but. Having said that, it's also important for your own identity to realise your own purpose. You know, so, you know, those three words, vision, identity and purpose, they, they just, they go together. You can have a whole seminar on this, you know, like it's just something that I believe so passionately in, and it's something that, you know, has shaped your and my career because, you know, before we arrived as big, big people, and there's been very few big people in the game, um, it was all light, nimble or tall and strong, you know, individuals. There were very few power hitters like us, you know, who also, you know, could deliver in different parts of, of game. You were the ball and fielding, me just the field. Um, but it's it was part of our identity to do it differently as well and to see it differently. Mm. And even when you look at one of the numbers that I'm most proud of, I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely having numbers um, spat out. But one of the things that I'm most proud of within those numbers, which doesn't necessarily tell a story because there's just a lot of athletes in that space now, that T20 space. But one of the great challenges we had as a, as a unit was like a Hayden Potting show, really, where, and I'm sure you can remember this, is it's just like kind of was really traditional. Like he was really, he just loved test cricket, one day cricket. He saw no space for T20 cricket. And, and, I, was, and I was adamant. To the core, in fact, to the point where I left Cricket Australia board because I was deliberating on too long on why, you know, the the Brisbane Heat and the the whole of the 
the franchise setups in in domestic Australian cricket were just the time they were taking to just get involved to create the Big Bash League was so frustrating. It just and was so frustrating. And to this day, we still we still have a hangover with poor and negative thinking around T20 cricket in Australia. The individuals that have done it have done it well. Guys like yourself have done it. Davy Warner and others. There's a couple of great names that have been you know heavily involved in T20 cricket and have and it's yielded you know great rewards in many ways. Maybe even as I said before, quite undiscovered. But the reality is that T20 cricket in my head was the future, was part of the future anyway. Mm. And so, I mean, I went to that World Cup, you know, in South Africa and I just thought I want to dominate this time. I want Australia to actually be lifting that trophy. Now, potentially, thank God we didn't, right, because maybe if India hadn't won that, that particular World Cup, maybe there'd be no IPL. There's a good chance they wouldn't because they were initially not going to send a team. They were going to boycott that first. They were going to boycott. Yep, they were going to boycott that 2007 first T20 World Cup. I was like, nah, we're traditionalists. Thank yeah. God they didn't, because then it, yeah, as you they, said, IPL probably wouldn't have come about. And and look, God loved tradition in in our great game. You know, like it's it's also yielded dividends having having you know the the old sort of stoic guard of the game hmm. and the protection thereof. But you know, I just believe in the gospel of the future as well. <laughs> I'll just move on to uh, something um, slightly different, but it's around the, like, the, the mental skills um, and performance, um, and, it, and it's to do with the media and the scrutiny that the scrutiny that the media does provide playing international yeah. cricket. Yeah. Was um, did this, the scrutiny ever affect your on-field performance? Did it actually mm-hmm. penetrate you to an extent that it just actually, yeah, it affected your potential output? Yeah, look, as a, as a simple yes, no answer, the answer is, of course, yes, um, naturally. But it's not a simple answer. It's, it's not a simple question because it's actually not, mm. a, it's not a simple field of, of any part of your life, mm. um, public life, that is. Now, I, I talk to CEOs, managing directors, uh, board directors that, that have uh, been exposed to, to what you and I as athletes went through on a daily basis. In fact, we used to joke about it. We used to, we used to always say, buddy, it's your turn now. Remember, that was pretty much like a common thread. And, and yep, it became, Someone's always going to be in the gun. <laughs> and, didn't, and didn't we just love to throw them there as well? Because like, <laughs> if the heat's not on me, it's on you, you know. It's like it's your, your turn. So it became, it actually became something that, Typically, as Australians, you know, when we when we get under pressure, and I'm thinking of you know the great the great uh, yarns from the old diggers in war times where they, you know, used to make light of situations which you know I encourage us as Australians to continue to have in our DNA. We we need to see the brighter side of any picture, and we're bloody good at it. You know, the banner that we have uh, as Australians is phenomenal when we're under pressure. But getting back to the point, you know, it's really it's it's the times in cricket really changed the moment they introduced a media liaison officer. <laughs> and I would say that there's been an erosion of the relationships that happened in my day, early days in particular, to where they are now, where the, the, a Robert Craddock, for example, is always third party to a Shane Watson. And, you know, working on the other side of the fence as well, 
um, you know, one of the hardest teams to deal with actually working on the other side of the fence is Chennai Super Kings because it's so protected. Yet the reality is, is that you have to look at this through the eyes of the spectator first. And this is something that I got, I reckon, really early doors because it was never managed third party. It was always a direct relationship with a, I name Robert Craddock, but it's only because it's the first person I can think of. It was a Robert Craddock or a Malcolm Conn talking to a Matthew Hayden in direct dialogue. And so their filter for that was based on any filter of any human interaction. Mm. If I was a prick, then, of course, the pen would come out and bingo, what would be written. So it wasn't even necessarily about um, what was written. It was about managing the relationship and seeing the right and respectfully talking in, in, in t- to these to these individuals as people with wives and family and jobs and careers on the line, you know. So it's it's far better to embrace the person and people than than to push away with negative reactions and just be the problem again. It gets back to that. Do you want to be a part of the solution or part of the problem? Some days you're going to have a bad press call. You know, they're just going to want to they're going to want to call you out on it. Mm. And it, look, in those times, they're the times where good leaders stand up important messages need to come out even if that message is listen these areas which you've picked up on correct and rightfully we need to acknowledge these failings or flaws in our system and we will deliver outcomes better because of this this reaction and this possibility i completely agree Doss. if i had my time again the one thing that i would have done is built better relationships from the outset with media with the media with individuals because i was i came in at a time where there was there was a um a media advisor so there was and there was that distance available to you if you wanted it and mm. i was gun shy around the public and the yeah and, and that sort of feedback that i'd that i'd get so i was like you know what no i'm gonna stay away and it meant that because i didn't have the personal relationship up until right towards the end of my career, the last sort of four or five years, I realized, or three or four years, I realized that, that how important that personal connection is because yeah. that person who's writing has got, if they don't really know, they don't really know you personally. If they don't know you personally, all they've got is from a third party media manager that Nate doesn't want to talk. Yeah. They, exactly. have, they have great control over going, well, I'm, I'm not going to, well, you know, I'm going to actually go a bit harder just with a few words that I use instead of yeah. going down to writing and going, you know, he's actually yeah. guy, he's going through a bit of a tough time right now and we get it. So a couple of words that I'll use just won't yeah. be as hard hitting. And yeah, what you yeah. said there is just it's it's exactly the lesson that I've learned. And if I have my yeah. time again, and that's exactly what this next generation, that's exactly well, what they need to do. Yeah, well exactly the good thing is you, you, your time is not finished, you know, like you've only just started, you know, you you you're in the space now. So yeah, I think lessons learned are so lessons learned. I'm going to move on to financial lessons learned. And this is absolutely not around how much money you earned, how much money you've got. It's not that at all. It's, it's totally around the lessons that you've learned. And if you had your time again, would you have, from an yeah. investment and wealth generation point of view, yeah. would you have invested your money differently or with the advice that you had around you throughout your career, you actually yeah. did a pretty, you know, a pretty good job at it? I always looked at it, I guess, and... and and with Kelly looked at it in terms of the two key factors that I was talking about from an investment point of view being time and energy, mm. you know, what was efficient? Was it, were investments, for example, very time consuming or were they efficient on that time? Did they need a lot of my energy? Cause it, there's only so much 
that I can really, you know, take care of at any given time. So, you know, I suppose I, I was very, very lucky. And I don't know if you can have a count on that word through the course of this interview, but I reckon I've said luck a number of times. We all need luck, don't we? We need, and we need to try and make the most of the luck that we're all, you know, we're all presented. I just reckon luck plays such a huge role, but I was, you know, really lucky to, to have a fantastic financial advisor that, an accountant that, you know, really taught me the, the value of what an asset was. Okay. Um, Such as? So, well, an asset, an asset is, is something that, that provides uh, a revenue stream. It's, mm. it's, and I think that's in Australia, you know, certainly the way that I was always brought, brought up, you know, house and car and, you know, having no debt was, was really key to that relationship and they are mm. all considered assets. But I suppose, you know, what, what advice I got, um, you know, from from my legal slash and accountancy team is that, you know, an asset is something that pays you money that that has a cash flow and and look, you know, during these times, cash is king. You know, that's they can they're, all the old cliches they're created in business for a reason. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about a rainy day check, well, it's raining. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess it was a very uh, methodical approach to investment. Um, okay. and, and those were in, you know, annuity-type income streams um, th- that enabled um, cash flow in times where it didn't rely on you and me standing behind a microphone or a camera or a cricket bat, mm. um, that it actually enabled us to, to, to um, you know, provide a cash flow for my family when 24-7. 365 days a year so it was it was you know that style of of wealth management is not for everyone um are you talking more around commercial property or the share market equities well well a mixture of all of all of those um properties but Mm. uh, in particular um share market portfolios and commercial Mm. properties yeah Mm. and and the benefits that they have and also the disadvantages that they have as well Mm. because properties still you know, still have rainy days and tenants in particular now, I don't think there's been a more challenging time mm. in and around super players in the commercial property space that, you know, don't have the, don't have the cash flow that, that they had, you know, four weeks ago, you know, that are really, you know, involved in government schemes now and, and you know, landlords having to, you know, to, to, to create mercy environments for companies. So, you know, there's no easy way to do it, but good advice is, is key. And, and the mistakes that I've made in business have all been around speculative type deals. Okay. Um, deals that probably, probably the biggest mistake that I made was um, net whiskey that, that um, you know, went into bankruptcy. And, and, you know, my heart was led in that discussion, but I probably didn't dig deep enough back into the business model, the business case and hmm. of, of net whiskey. And, and it started moving and, like like most bad business cases do they shift you know like rather than just go what we were talking about being this is this is about this this is our vision this is where our business model looks in three four five years time it's just solid 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 it's trying to eat a six off one leg and i probably didn't realize that until too late Mm. um and it's and it's been you know as an endorser of that whiskey but also you know, just as someone that just fell in love with the dream, and it's still going today, thankfully, because it's mm. one of Australia's great whiskies and a really important area, you know, in Tassie, which I think do, 
you, you, you'll know better than me, just some of the great um, uh, wine and food and, and whiskey yeah. districts and beer, you know, all that. They're just so good at it. Um, but, yeah, it was just something that I, I learned a lot from, you know, that, that you know, to be an investor um, because the moment you become a brand ambassador for something or someone, you are an investor. Um, and I take that role really, really seriously. So another mistake is that I, that I made was I had a joint venture partnership with Southern Cross Osterio Media Group mm-hmm. called the Get Outside Group, and it was linking talent um, to uh, mainstream media um, agencies and, and clients. So with the erosion of, of the media landscape, this became a solution um, to directly link the clients with the inventory. You know, so say for example, if you're, you know, Triple M, you have, you know, 500 different clients that sit around your space. Well, this was to get the talent, in-house talent that a network like Southern Cross Osterio has got and link it through reads and live messages and, you know, different creatives around what I believe is to be really important role of, of influences and talent. Um, because, you know, if you're not authentic in that space, you're out of the game. Um, unfortunately though, it was the issue was about timing for me rather than the actual product itself. At the time, Southern Cross Osteria was going through some really um, difficult times with the mainstream of their radio business. And, and so like everyone, cricketers are no different. You're focusing on your strengths, not your weaknesses when times get tough. And so those companies that were marginal companies or seedling companies tended to get less priority than they should have and and definitely less investment. And it just fell over. But look, the idea itself is is the future mm-hmm. without any question. Um, as we see, you know, these times now where there's no live sport. So what's been what's been telecast? What's you know you and I can do this media right now. That's that's the future. Yep. You know, if there was no network, we could still be up and running, <laughs> and and creating you know authentic content. You and I. No, there's no IP that's that's that is like this. That's the beauty of 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 you know content creators. Yep. Um, and so this business and my business, I actually bought that company off them um, as JV partner and. and have created called Storyline, which it's the same or similar sort of thinking, um, knowing that content created still, as they say, content is king, and to develop and build properties and authentic um, through authentic storytellers and, and content creators is still a big part of the future. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was at a time when it probably needed 4 or $5 million of investment and we could be sitting on a two, three hundred million dollar business right now without any mm. doubt. And I just thank God that it probably didn't happen because, I mean, for mine, the balance of my life um, with the creation of of we discussed, you know, wealth management and and the time and freedom that allows me to to just go play. Mm. Um, you know, there was no space for the vision of me being a big fat, you know media magnate with you know 500 staff and and just you know a, a, a lack of uh nimbleness i i, yep. I feel that it's was a blessing in disguise put it that way yeah yep. 
And that's the beauty of life, isn't it? There's things that happen that you think, why does that happen? There's like, there's an opportunity that surely is there. It's, it's a great concept. Everything's worked out, but yeah. that moment in time, but then you look back and you go, yeah, well, yeah. you know, everything Thank happens. Goodness. Yep. I'm glad that's what happened. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the thing is for mine in business and I think this has been coming all the way through um, today's chat as well I'm, I'm open to ideas and i'm not never close to, to shutting down and and judging um i think most things can work if you've got you know a dynamic and passionate relationship to what you do and you're driven um and you're disciplined in, in your approach um you can make things happen and things do happen that's the reality of it because as i said um before you know you have to be so careful about what you think about because it's it doesn't take long before it starts to manifest itself in your in your life. Either way, it's negative or positive. Yep, that's young, the power of the unconscious mind. Something that we don't understand at all, do we? Like really, yeah. like man, I don't even know if we're supposed to understand that. Yeah, exactly. But it's the yeah, it's a, it's a power which which direction the steering wheel's turned. Just understanding how powerful that is. One of the, one of you know one of the great lessons I, I, I find with with business though is is also. Um, and this lesson comes from cricket is you can get really busy trying to understand and make yourself better with all the assets you don't have. But I, I feel that like cricket, if you're focusing on your strengths and you're, and you're making sure that they're handled well and you, and you also understand your weaknesses, um, you know, like one for me, my organisational skills, you know, aren't, terrific so you know to have resources and people in and around you to to coordinate and, and operate for the things that you don't have is the benefit and beauty of team building and having you know an absence of ego to allow that to happen i think can only be a strength well hey Dos, this has been super special to have had you on this episode of lessons learned with the greats you have lived such an amazing life and scaled the heights of world cricket so thank you so much for giving me the time and sharing all of these incredible insights with us. And we are, everyone who listens to this is going to be that much richer for digging into, digging deeper into the minds of one of the greats. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, thank so you. thank you, mate. My pleasure, buddy. No worries at all. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.